Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. Recently we paid for a blue check on Twitter. Yes, this is exactly what Z-list internet celebrity depression looks like. <laughs> But uh, before we get to the fun part, I have to start with sad news. Uh, remember September of 22, that one guy at Donetsk bar doing a Shakespearean stand-up routine with a skull. His name is Igor Mangushev, an OG Donetsk rebel, chevalier of fortune and a commander of anti-drone squad. Four days ago, he was shot in the back of the head under extremely weird circumstances. Far from the front line in the Lugansk town Stahanov, so 9mm to the back of the head. In September, right after his Donetsk bar escapade, We contacted him and he agreed to do an interview with us. Unfortunately, it didn't work out and he was off to the front lines again. It's a very tragic event. I'm, I was uh, really uh, kind of demoralized by it. Mangushev is a great guy. Call sign Berek. Yeah, the event, we still don't know for sure what happened. It appears most likely to have been some kind of personal conflict. Yeah, that's one of those things that happens in an area that is uh, flooded with weapons and uh, when emotions are high and uh, yeah, the incident will be investigated properly. It is already being investigated. He's a captain of the Russian armed forces um, after the integration of the Ugansk the people's militia into the Russian army. And uh, this kind of thing is uh, being taken seriously. So yeah, Berek, a very interesting guy, um, very interesting biography. He is actually not really a soldier by trade. He's a media and public relations guy. He spent a lot of time in Lebanon uh, doing some shady political stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know the details of what he did there, but uh, he founded uh, one of the first, it wasn't really a proper PMC, but uh, something between a volunteer unit and a PMC of the Donbass War, the Yenot Corp, the Raccoons. Yeah, they did a lot of good stuff in the first Donbass War, and afterwards he went back to his political consultant stuff uh, in the Middle East which is actually his trade. And when the special military operation started, he went back and enlisted and created the Surikats anti-drone squad. And uh, he's been basically always on the front lines and uh, driving up and down and uh, teaching military units and providing them anti-drone equipment. Um, he has a lot of like, uh, you know, the the crazy genius type of engineers in his unit and uh, they are doing very advanced very experimental stuff and uh, it seems to be working really great he has shot down dozens of uh, ukrainian uh, drones and uh, yeah he was very good at this stuff and uh, we can only hope that his uh, his team will continue the work yes it's important to understand that there is a lot of people who are non-loyalists to the state, but uh, they fight in this war. They do not like Putin or the regime. They're not tied to it whatsoever. Of course, when something happens to such people who are brave and openly 
say bad things about like Shoigu. Of course, there will be a talk that that was an attempted assassination by the state, right? By the Chechens or whoever wanted to punish him or people like him for speaking their mind. I don't think that there was any conspiracy here. I'm in contact with people close to Igor and um, there is no sign that any that it was like some kind of uh, shady assassination by evil forces. Um, it appears to have been some very stupid personal conflict. Um, well, someone we shot his yet. windshield on his car. Yes. Um, to cover up... So like what I personally think might have happened is that um, they didn't even plan on shooting him because um, the bullet hit his uh, skull from a 45 degree angle in a downward motion. So it appears that he was either sitting or on his knees. And um, I think from what I know, it's possible that whomever he had, he had a conflict with was just trying to scare and threaten him and put him on his knees and put a gun to his uh, the back of his head. And possibly, uh, I don't know for sure, but possibly they accidentally shot him and then just ran away because uh, that was too much for them to handle. Because otherwise it would be very weird that they, like if it was a serious assassination, and then they decided to shoot the windows to cover up? Or... Maybe, maybe. We, we we just don't know. Um, like, even the people very close to him, like uh, Grubnik, um, they don't know yet the details. Uh, it's uh, really... It's not some cover-up. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. There was no indication that he was, uh, like, in any imminent danger. But Berek is a very straightforward guy who uh, likes saying what he thinks. And uh, as such, uh, many people don't like that. Yeah, Donbass is a very dangerous place. A lot of hotheads. You can fight at the front lines and survive that. But uh, in the peaceful town far away from the front line, you might get shot, killed, uh, exploded. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, disinformation because Russian bloggers, they can't uh, leave something like that. They have to make up some elaborate conspiracy theory, something about supposedly him getting shot at a checkpoint in Stakhanov, but there are no checkpoints in Stakhanov. The town Mm -hmm. is not directly on the front lines and there are no checkpoints there. Yeah, so could be really anything because there is ample ways for a conflict to arise a guy like Berek who is uh, very brave in a cowboy way yes may you rest in peace Berek so back to usual program Uh, let's pick a subject for discussion from a random AI generated list Bakhmut and Frontlines Twin Peaks Collectivism versus Individualism Dichotomy HBD, Chinese so-called spy balloon, made Americans go bananas, petty attempts of cancelling Pushkin, and... Alright, let's start with Pushkin. We did an episode on the greatest Russian poet a while ago. Go check it out. It's very high, bro. I imitate a black American accent for half an hour. There we told you the basics about Pushkin's life, and his work, and why he is so important to Russian culture. 
Now there is an ultra-liberal campaign against Pushkin on Twitter and some articles on foreign policy against Pushkin. Have to check it out. It's time to decolonize Pushkin. Pushkin praised imperialism and is responsible for his distant relative Putin. <laughs> I will read out loud the analytical article of foreign policy. <laughs> From Pushkin to Putin, Russian literature's imperial ideology. They seem obsessed with the fact that uh, if you misspell Pushkin, you will have Putin. Written by Vladimir Yermalenko. A philosopher and the editor of Ukraine World. One of the streets in Hoholiv. What is Hoholiv? A town just east of Ukraine's capital. In Bravari. It's a village. Uh -huh. One of the streets in Gogoliv, a town just east of uh, Ukraine's capital, Kiev, bears the name of Lermontov, a 19th century Russian poet. Lermontov never visited Ukraine and only a few of his poems touch on Ukrainian topics. But streets all over Ukraine are still named for him and other Russian cultural figures, a heritage of its Soviet imperial past. Gogolev, which saw heavy fighting in March, similarly honors Anton Chekhov, Vladimir Maikovsky, and Alexander Pushkin. Naming streets in every city, town, and village is just one of the instruments for an empire to designate and control its colonial space. Every prominent Russian name was a way to exclude a Ukrainian one. Street names were a tool to erase local memory. Any thoughts so far? <sighs> I don't know what to say. I mean, it's obviously... Like, if you look at it, the monuments to, like, Taras Shevchenko in Donetsk and Lesya Ukrainka in Moscow, um, to those poets considered, like, the national canon by Ukrainian nationalists, and uh, they are in Moscow, in Donetsk, in St. Petersburg, and everywhere, and it's no problem because little Russian literature is not a threat to Russian culture. It's uh, it's like a provincial element of Russian culture. It's a very specific thing, like, I don't know, like Occitan poetry and Occitan poetry revival in 19th century France. It's a, a local curiosity, kind of cool if it doesn't work for foreign agents, but it's not a threat or anything. Whereas uh, Pushkin, Lermontov, Chekhov, and so on, are a huge threat to the Ukrainian project because basically a Ukrainian is um, a Russian who has to get up every day, look into the mirror and choose between Pushkin and um, NAFO posts on Twitter. And uh, being a Ukrainian means that you consciously decide every single morning to throw away Pushkin and to choose the uh, Le Funny Doc memes on Twitter. And uh, that is what it means to be Ukrainian. And since the choice is not obvious, it is a huge threat. It is a temptation to just... Uh, because you have the foundation of a world-class great culture and uh, you need to have some sort of incentive to go away from it because... Uh, a normal person would always gravitate towards it. 
the Russian language uh, and access to the Russian language is the single thing that kind of uh, makes the Ukrainian project into something that is remotely serious and capable of any kind of creative thought. And without it, they don't have anything. That's why they have to actively fight it, because otherwise people would never even think of abandoning Russian culture. Yeah, to be fair, Ukrainian culture is pretty all right. It's like Montenegrin culture. It's on par for a small Slavic country. The only problem is Russian culture is not in the same league of Slavic cultures. If Croatians and Serbs can do it for eternity, because there are near peer, right? Uh, Ukrainians and Russians are not. That's why they need to be aggressive and erase all traces of Russian culture or it will grow through the concrete. I like how the, those Ukrainians are... Their only chance of defeating Russia, even culturally, is uh, cozying up to the West. And, of course, uh, to adopt... Uh, Western intersexual narratives against Russia. That's what they're doing. This article is a prime example of it. So Lermontov, behind his romanticism, there is something else, the cold grip of an empire. Lermontov's most famous poem, Mtsiri, or The Novice, written in 1839, is an idyllic account of Caucasian monk taken prisoner by a Russian army officer as a boy. The poem's key emotion is a feeling of hopelessness. The proud and glorious history of the people of the Caucasus is in the past and gone forever, and the main character's nostalgia for a lost past tells us that he belongs to the defeated side of humanity. In Ulansha, Lermontov's early obscene poem here recounts the collective rape of a woman by Russian soldiers. The text does not seem to have any visible sign of sympathy for the victim. Another poem, Kafkazets, hints that the true Caucasians aren't the natives, but the Russian soldiers who conquered the region. Just as Lermontov constructed an imperial colonial Russian perspective on the Caucasus, Pushkin did so on Ukraine. Take Poltava. Pushkin's poem about Ivan Mazepa, the Ukrainian hetman who rebelled against Tsar Peter the Great as he was tightening Russian control over Ukraine, and whom Russian President Vladimir Putin just invoked in the speech about regaining the lands of the Russian Empire. For Ukrainians, Mazepa is a symbol of national resistance against Russian domination, and a reminder that Tsarist Russia broke a 17th century treaty preserving the Cossacks, in brackets, future Ukrainians. <laughs> this is just so hilarious. It's like whole-tip-tier historiography. <laughs> future Ukrainians. Autonomy in return for allegiance to the Muscovites, future Russians. Wait a second. So, Mazepa is a symbol of national resistance uh, and a reminder that Tsarist Russia broke Treaty preserving the Cossacks' future Ukrainians' autonomy. Who broke uh, what treaty? Wasn't that uh, Mazepa who well, betrayed Russia and not vice versa? Yes, of course. It was uh, Mazepa simply uh, switched sides during the Northern War against the Swedish. And uh, Mazepa simply switched to the Swedish side. 
it's hard to explain why actually he was rich powerful uh peter the great had given him everything in his life and he just betrayed him for literally no reason and uh, it's like one of the most baffling examples of treason in history and he didn't get anything out of it it's just absolutely retarded for ukrainians peter broke the deal for Russians, any Ukrainian claim of autonomy was treachery. Well, uh, he says that uh, Mazepo just tried to preserve autonomy by <laughs> laying with the Swedes. Pushkin takes the Russian view of depicting Mazepa as a lecherous traitor who would spill blood as soon as water. Ukrainians to be pitied and despised, the poem suggests, as friends of old and bloody times. It's very funny. I like that. Moscow's future Russians. Pushkin takes the Russian view. Who knew? Actually, uh, I think that Ukrainian identity is based on Lermontov, but uh, pseudo Lermontov. Do you know that? Well, everyone knows uh, that famous poem that is attributed to Lermontov. Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's. Uh, it's. I, I've seen maybe a hundred times that a Ukrainian would post this Lermontov's poem, showing that he's cultured and he's actually in tune with Russian culture. Ukrainians don't know that uh, Lermontov never wrote this poem, and it's a very late forgery. Well, it's a bit unclear. It's a bit of an open question, but yes, it most likely uh, it was written by Dmitry Minaev, satirical poet who wrote a lot of parodies on um, Russian poets, uh, including Lermontov. And uh, yeah, it's, it's likely that it's a Minaev uh, parody of Lermontov style that was um, attributed to Lermontov. But it is possible that Lermontov wrote it, but it, I mean, he was kind of very buttered about being sent to the Caucasus because it was uh, exile for him. So, well, yeah, it's not a bad <laughs> poem. Farewell, unwashed Russia, land of slaves, land of masters, and you, blue uniforms, and you, people devoted to them, perhaps beyond the bowl of Caucasus, I will hide from your pashas, from their all-seeing eye, from their all-hearing ears. In Russian, it doesn't sound uh, half bad, but still, I read some uh, investigation and... Uh, find it very hard to believe that it's uh, it was written by Lermontov, not because of tone, actually, but because, well, there is no proofs that he wrote it. Yes, I mean, but the thing is that even if it is real, it, it so what? Like, so what? It's like, uh, it's another case of, like, Ukrainian pro projection, because there is no Ukrainian cultural canon except, like, Kapzai, Shevchenko, and, like, and that's it and if uh, you removed one of those then it would all collapse on itself but it's just not the case like so what if Lermontov was mad about being sent to the Caucasus and wrote a poem where he insulted Russia like what what are the implications what are we supposed to do with that information even if it's true but he was Ukrainian <laughs> <laughs> well yeah uh, Russians have a right to criticize Russia and they always did so. And Pushkin was not some imperialist drone, but uh, he was a man with a very complicated uh, 
life and very he, yeah, his it, outlook on Russia changed. Yes, and it's funny actually because in like classical Soviet historiography, he is uh, like a borderline socialist uh, rebel against uh, the Russian Empire. Yeah, and but I have to say I I fully agree with what the Ukrainians are saying here. Uh, they are not wrong. They are not wrong to feel threatened by Russian culture because it is the biggest threat in existence to Ukrainian culture. The biggest threat to Ukrainian culture is not uh, tanks and jets and bombs and artillery. The biggest threat is just normal Russian culture because Ukrainian culture is an artificial construct that has to be propped up with uh, lots of effort, with um, propaganda, with terror. And Russian culture just comes natural because as any big seriously big great culture of which there are, are not a lot in the world it is somewhat universalist and uh, like anyone uh, in the world can read uh, Dostoevsky and uh, Chekhov and Tolstoy just as anyone in the world can read Shakespeare or Cervantes and um, this universalism is a very huge danger because Russian culture not only comes naturally for Ukrainians uh, because they it's what they grew up with, it's uh, what their whole life is shaped, but also because it's just more attractive. That's it. And also I agree that uh, with the Ukrainians that it's uh, one of those cases where the extremists are a lot more right than the appeasers because there are like a lot of um, people like mad about this point of view that uh, Russian culture is just an extension of uh, Russian imperialism or whatever, and that no, it's actually like uh, completely universalist and humanist and so on, and it belongs to everyone, which is true to some degree. But on the other hand, it is true. Right? The golden age of Russian literature and poetry is an organic result of the Russian Empire in its time and of uh, the whole culture and the culture of the Russian Empire was a military aristocratic culture as um, Tsar Alexander said that Russia is not an agricultural country it's not a trade country it's a country of war and um, Russian culture is of course shaped by war and uh, yes the the Imperial spirit permeates through all of Russian culture, and it's the only thing that makes those uh, who hated Russia inside Russia is the only thing that makes them interesting, because uh, it's very easy to hate your country if your country is shit. But uh, when you have someone like Shadaev, who was a war hero in the War of eighteen twelve against Napoleon, and who took Europe together with the Russian army and liberated Europe and entered Paris. If you are like this decorated officer of the Russian army and you are witnessing Russia at its most triumphant and at its peak, and then he turns around and says, hey, but what if actually nothing matters and uh, Russia is actually shit? And that's at least some kind of interesting point of view because it's so contrarian. All Russians have a doubt, uh, well, they are a crazy imperialist, but they are also cynics at the same time. 
the last point that demonstrates how tough it is to fight uh, Russian culture and basically impossible. The Ukrainians picture Soviet Union as some logical continuation of Russian empire. It's as if it's the same thing. But actually, Soviets had a honest try. Uh, they really tried to reform Russian culture, to forget uh, many of the writers and poets, but they couldn't really do it. They failed. Despite all their attempts, they still had to continue well, reading Pushkin and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, ignoring the fact that they were not in tune with communism at all because it's so powerful that you can't really fight it. To a broader point, this claim that the Russian Empire and the USSR were functionally the same is a common propaganda point in all of the buttered belt. It's about two things. Uh, the first is just ethnic uh, resentment against Russians, which makes sense because the population was still largely the same in both the USSR and the Russian Empire. But I think it's also a point to absolve themselves of responsibility because um, there is a whole club of nations who did everything they could to bring down the Russian Empire and caused Bolshevism by doing so. A prime example being the Baltic countries. Um, we all know about uh, the Latvian impact on the Russian Revolution um, in Estonia during their uh, constituent assembly. The Bolsheviks actually won the elections. They lost the elections in Russia, which is what caused the civil war. And they just straight up won in Estonia. A majority of Estonians supported Bolshevism. Um, Poland... Uh, made peace with the Bolsheviks and put the third Russian army who were fighting on the Polish side in the Soviet-Polish war in concentration camps. And um, the Czechs and Slovaks, the Czechoslovakian Corps, they stole um, the Russian gold reserves and caused Admiral Kolchak's death. Finland, you have Russian general, an officer of the Russian Imperial Army, of the lifeguard, um, who somehow forgot that he is uh, a Russian officer during the civil war and uh, became the leader of Finland, despite he didn't even know Finnish. He was a racified Swede who somehow became a Finnish patriot during a time when his country really, really needed him. And all of these countries, uh, the Baltics, Finland, the Caucasus as well, um, a hotbed of uh, SR and Bolshevik activity. Um, all these countries, they are, of course, not the whole populations, the, the governments uh, or whatever passed for governments during that time, the national movements, they all brought about the victory of Bolshevism. I've posted about it on Twitter. I read the memoirs of Getman Skaropatsky a while ago. And in it, he discusses how the Ukrainian nationalists, the hardcore Ukrainian nationalists from Western Ukraine, they would rather support the Bolsheviks than the whites because they knew that they could work with the Bolsheviks. And um, they, had, they had a common interest. All these uh, 
the nationalists from the Limitrov countries and the Bolsheviks, they had a common aim in destroying Russia. They shared that. And suddenly, when the revolution started eating its own children, they became principled enemies of communism, which they weren't when they there was actually a chance to destroy communism. So all this talk about how the USSR is just organic and logical and uh, it's just uh, another uh, variation of the Russian Empire is just a way for them to push away that responsibility, which they do carry. And uh, national Russia at some point will ask these questions of these countries. Well said, yeah, because it's really not about fighting the communism. All right, enough about that. Let's do a section on uh, the front lines. There is a lot of talk about encirclement, but of course it's not full or even operational, right? No, Bakhmut is not yet. As, I think operational encirclement is one of the most useless terms that anyone has ever used in this war. 